Let me pray for us as we get ready this morning to look at 2 Peter. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you for your mercies, your kindness. Thank you for the kindness of uh, redeeming the whole us, of caring not just about our souls, but about our bodies. Thank you for being with those who have lost loved ones over the past year or recent years. And um, thank you for knowing what it is to cry tears in the face of death. Thank you for giving us your word and letting us gather at your feet this morning to hear from scriptures. Would you be at work so that we don't give you half of our hearts or half of our attention? Help us to give all that we are to you. Lord, some of us don't know you or trust you as anyone supernatural. Um, We might not know why we should give ourselves that completely to you. Send your Holy Spirit to convince us, no matter what we think of you, to begin opening our hearts to all that you are. We pray in your name. Amen. What do you say to people you love when you know that your time is short? What do you say to people you love when you know you just don't have that much more opportunity to be with them, to speak with them, to pass along wisdom? That's the book of 2 Peter. It's the Apostle Peter answering that question. It's kind of his last public address to the church. Um, We mentioned a couple weeks ago and when we were looking at the book of Revelation, I believe, somewhere, somewhere in there, we talked about the Emperor Nero and persecution against Christians that increased after a major fire swept through Rome in the early 60s AD. Peter is ministering in Rome about that time, and he seems to sense that that persecution is coming, and he seems to sense that His time is short. He was right. He was crucified in the city of Rome uh, under Nero's command just after that fire. And so he reaches out to the church and writes a second letter. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind. He wants to stir up the faith of those that he has little time left with. But he wants to stir up their sincere mind. Now, if I had been translating that phrase, I think I would have said sincere understanding. Why? Because not everyone in the church then or now who claims to have an understanding of the truth about Jesus is sincere in that. And so you're going to hear Peter warn early Christians that not everyone is sincere. There are false teachers in the church. He's going to call them scoffers. 
What are the scoffers mocking or scoffing at? Well, Christian teachers like Peter and the other apostles were saying, Jesus is going to return, and when he does, there will be a final judgment. And if our lives now don't reflect a sincere knowledge of Jesus, then we are not ready to face that judgment. And the scoffers, well, they denied all of that. They said, yeah, Peter, those other apostles are exaggerating. Jesus isn't going to come, or when he does, it's not going to be that big a deal. There's not going to be a final judgment, or the judgment is not going to be quite as severe as you tend to think. And so, the comfortable kind of moral standards that we've been accustomed to before we came to know Jesus will still work just fine for us as Christians. Peter has something to say in response to that. Let's listen now as Peter, knowing that his time is short, speaks in response. Caleb, thank you. The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 and 13 through 18. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm realizing I forgot to say something very important. This is the same sling that our son Patch used when he broke his right collarbone. And so close to my heart as I'm preaching this morning, is some artwork. I believe the technical term for this artwork is bedazzling. Uh, Ruthie and uh, Kathleen Hoover came over to bedazzle Patch's sling uh, and, and comfort and encourage him. So uh, we're, we're still getting good use out of the, I, I can't show everyone the artwork. I'm, I'm so sad. Um, but, you know, hey, if I find out this week that I'm going to have to wear this thing for a long time, I'm just going to be calling you up for my own dose of bedazzling. Um, what I really wanted to talk to you about is not bedazzling, but banjo playing. 
You ever heard of a guy named Bela Fleck? His name is often mispronounced Bela. It's a Hungarian name, Bela. Bela Fleck. He's the best banjo player ever. He's won 15 Grammy Awards. Um, he's won them in more categories. He's been nominated in more Grammy categories than anybody in history because he has not only played world-class level bluegrass, as you would expect a, a great banjo player to do, but he's integrated banjo into uh, symphonic music and classical music. He plays with orchestras. He's played reggae and rock and country and pop and you name the genre. And he has learned how to play banjo at a, at a level and a scale and with a variety and virtuosity that um, is, is incredible. He's the kind of guy that like, if you think you hate banjo music, don't assume that you're gonna hate listening to him play. Because when you listen, you're like, I had no idea this instrument could do that. Best ever. Hasn't been able to tour because of COVID. Makes sense. He's getting ready to start his first tour. Now, don't you go buy my ticket. Because the last stop on this tour is in Athens, Georgia next May. I listened to him the other day talk about how he's practicing to get ready. Oops practicing to get ready for this tour and how he feels like, you know, he's just not as sharp as he wants to be. And so he's working harder than ever to get back to the level that he wants to be at before this tour begins. This man is 63 years old. He started playing banjo when he was 15. Best ever, 15 Grammys. Don't you think, you know, he could kind of coast a little bit by now if he, if he decided? I, people would cut him a break, right? But he's still practicing, still improving. He wants to continually grow. The Apostle Peter, knowing his time is short, says to the church, here's my last word. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says, knowing Jesus should be like Bela Fleck playing the banjo, always wanting to grow, always wanting to grow. So today what I want us to talk about is what Peter calls growing in grace. Um, and then I want to talk about a particular means of growing in that grace that Peter focuses a lot of time on. So again, this language comes from the final verse of this final letter of the apostle Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Hey, one, one possibility is that you're carried away with the uh, false message that these scoffers are teaching and, and you'll lose your own strong foundation that you have because of your faith in Christ. But instead of that, here's what I want for you. I want you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can we unpack that phrase a little bit? 
I want you to know Christ. Knowledge of the Lord is the same as saying, know Christ. And, and to grow in knowing Christ means to know Him more and more, to know Him better and better, to know Him more deeply, to know His fullness in more areas of your life than you have ever before, or at greater depth in a given area than you ever have before. The vision we're being given of what it means to follow Jesus and love Him here is not one of stagnation or of um, kind of stiffness. It, it, it's one of agility. It's one of continuing to grow. It's one of saying, you know what? Those, those fingers on my picking hand are going to slow down if I don't keep playing, if I don't keep practicing. i got to pick that banjo up every day. I want to know more and more about how to master this instrument. And Peter is using that same kind of language to talk about knowing Jesus. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Know Jesus and know him more and more. But not only that, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. What would it mean to grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? It means to know, to experience more and more of the grace that he offers and gives. So the more I know Jesus, the more I will know the grace that he offers. The more I know true grace that comes from Jesus, the more I will want to know Jesus. These things go hand in hand, and so Peter links them together in one phrase. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's talk for a moment about three aspects of the grace that comes from Jesus and uh, think about what it means to grow in all of these. All three of these together make up salvation. So in verse 15, when, when Peter says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about this Salvation that comes by grace from Jesus. But that salvation has a lot of different facets and aspects. Here's the first one. From Jesus, we receive the grace of a new status. Listen to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, waiting for what? A new heaven and, and a new earth. Since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. A new status of not being at enmity or, or in hostility with God, not being in rebellion against God or not being apathetic towards God, but being at peace with God. Why? Because of what Christ has done. A new status of being acceptable to God. Where's the language of acceptable come from in this verse? Well, be found by him without spot or blemish. That language of being without spot and blemish is the language of the Old Testament to talk about sacrifices that were offered in worship. And you find Old Testament texts that say it is not acceptable to try to cut corners by saying, you know what, this lamb's got a broken leg already. Uh, let me offer that one to God. So instead of losing two lambs this week, one to an injury and one to sacrifice, I can cut a corner and, 
you know, God will be okay with that, right? Yeah, God will be okay if I love being wealthy more than I love him. He'll be okay with that, right? No, that's not acceptable. Bring, bring the offering that is unblemished, without spot. It's representing this kind of purity and perfection that God deserves and which we can't provide and supply ourselves, so bring a substitute to stand in your place. And of course, ultimately, that substitute is Christ, and so this language of being without blemish um, it actually only occurs six times in the New Testament, three of those in Peter's writings. So this is kind of an idea that's prominent in Peter's thought. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he tells us about the real substitute, right? He, he says, we've, we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, who is like a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus gives us a new status because he's the perfect substitute. Now God looks at us and finds us to be those who have always been at peace with him. We're so forgiven and cleansed that, that it's like God can't remember that we were once apathetic toward him. He can't remember that we once worshiped other things more than him. He can't remember that there have been times that we sinned against him. Why? Because he's foolish and unable, he has a bad memory? No, because he has such a perfect memory of Christ. And he has said, if you trust in Jesus, that's your new status. Every time I think of you, I will think of the perfection of Jesus. And his perfection will always outweigh your imperfections. If you put your trust in him, you have that new status. I, you will always be acceptable to me as one who is perfect. Not because God has a bad memory, but because he has such a perfect memory of Christ. Part of what it means to grow in the grace of Christ is to continually be astonished by that reality that we have this new status with God. We also have a new strength. That new status is sometimes called justification, right? And so since um, a lot of theology in the Western world was done in Latin for so many centuries, we get these long Latin-based terms to talk about biblical themes, and one of those is justification, having this new status with God because of Christ, our perfect substitute. This new strength has a fancy Latin name too, sanctification, that Christ gives us the grace of, um, of now having a, a new level of desire and ability to want to please God and to obey him. Listen to verse 14 again. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Christ is the one without spot or blemish. And now, because you are in him, work. Do work. Be diligent. Put effort into. Find this new strength to live before God as one who wants to please and honor him. Growing in the grace of Jesus, our Savior, means that we, we have this salvation that's made up of all these different kinds of grace. One is a, a justifying grace that gives us a new status before God. 
perfectly forgiven and pardoned without condemnation. And another is this new strength that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we now want to please God instead of ourselves in a way that's far more intense than just human desire could explain. It's supernatural. And not only do we want it, we now start to find the strength to actually be able to follow through. Now, not perfectly, not in this life. I know that. You know that. Peter, you think Peter knows that? You think Peter knows that you can be a follower of Jesus and still messed up and imperfect? <laughs> yeah, I think he knows that. I think the guy who denied Jesus three times in one night knows what it means to be a weak and frail and fallible human being. And yet, still, he says, there's a new strength we have. Jesus is so full of grace. And we're waiting for a new home. The fancy Latin name for this is glorification. Based on Romans chapter 8. That, that one day, Christ will return. And he will remove the curse from God's good creation. The curse pronounced in Genesis chapter 3. We're waiting for that new home. That's what verse 13 says. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new home in which everything is as it should be. Not only human conduct, righteousness in that sense, but human engagement with God, righteousness in that sense. And creation itself reflecting the goodness of God in every way so that every tear is wiped away. We are waiting for that. Now, when I call this home a new home, I don't mean the old one is destroyed and replaced with a new one. There are folks who have read Second Peter chapter 3 and concluded that that's what it's teaching us uh, because of some details in the text that we won't have time to look at this morning. But here are my two quick arguments for why the new home, the new heavens and the new earth, are not brand new ones that never existed before Jesus returned, but the ones in which we are currently dwelling, renewed, made new, purified, cleansed of every imperfection, and wiped free of every trace of evil and suffering and sorrow and pain. My two quick arguments for that would be, number one, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was not destroyed so that God created a new Jesus on the third day. The same Jesus who died on the cross rose again from the dead. Now, his body was glorified. It was radically different than when it had hung on the cross. This new body was so strong, I don't think you could drive a nail through it. This new body was so strong, it couldn't die. So it's, it's a different quality of body, but it's the same body, purified from all weakness and susceptibility to injury and death. And then the second argument would be that the first time this language of new heavens and new earth occurs in Scripture is in the book of Isaiah. And it's, being, it's a promise given to people who have lived in the city of Jerusalem when it was destroyed by the Babylonian army and they were taken away into slavery. And now 
God bringing them back out of Babylon to resettle the city and rebuild and renew their spiritual commitment to him. New heavens and new earth is, is a promise given to those people. Well, Jerusalem wasn't totally obliterated from the earth and, and let's create a new city in a different place. It was the old one that had been racked, uh, ransacked and pillaged and burned and looted that was renewed and, and restored. So my sense is that after reading those texts from the Old Testament and certainly after encountering the resurrected Jesus, when you read this language about new heavens and new earth, you're not thinking, oh, this old one's so messed up, God's just going to destroy it all together and create a brand new one. No. He's going to renew this one, make it so new that right now we might not be able to recognize it because the only thing we're familiar with is living in a world full of sorrow and tears and brokenness and pain. But the grace of Jesus means all three of those things, justification, sanctification, glorification, new status with in our relationship with God, new strength to obey God, and a desire, a longing for that new home where every fear is wiped away. And so a new motivation to begin working now to see that kind of redemption happen even before Jesus returns. If we know Jesus, we're going to want to continually grow in all of those ways. Humility, knowing that if, if I'm right with God, it's only because Christ is the spotless one, my substitute. I want to grow in obedience. I want to grow in my longing for what it would look like for this world to be made right. How will I do that? Bela Fleck doesn't get better at banjo playing just by sitting around saying, I want to get better. He does particular things. There are particular exercises or drills or songs that he might play over and over and over again or scales, right, as he's practicing. Jesus gives us this means to grow in his grace. Scripture. The Scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, not just a book. They're the way we do what Peter says. I don't have much time left with you. If, if, you, if you forget everything else, remember this one thing. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in that grace and in that kind of knowledge of him. How, how do we do that? through the scriptures. So here's a question that immediately is going to come to mind in the 21st century. How can scripture be a means of supernatural grace if it's really just human wisdom? Because that is the typical assumption since the late 1700s, at least in intellectual circles in the West, that the scripture is really just a collection of human wisdom. And maybe not all of it is wise but it's a reflection of kind of human religious traditions. Well, Jesus wants us to think differently. And so we start with this perspective. 
Scripture isn't just a book of human wisdom. The reality is that God speaks through human messengers. Listen to verse 2. Peter says, I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior. Well, Peter, tell us, how do we get that commandment of the Lord and Savior? Through your apostles. God speaks through human messengers. He spoke through human messengers in the Old Testament era. We tend to summarize that with one word, prophets. And God spoke again through human messengers. In the coming of Christ as the preeminent messenger, the the word become flesh, and then Jesus called to himself apostles. So sometimes it's, um, you know, you'll hear people say, well, Jesus didn't really say that. That's just something the apostle Paul wrote. The Apostle Paul would not have seen it that way at all. Jesus would not have seen it that way. Jesus speaks just as much through the words of Peter, John, Paul, their companions like Mark and Luke. Jesus is speaking to us through the Scriptures. God speaks through human messengers. Peter said that earlier in this book, back in chapter 1, verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If we're going to follow Jesus and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, then we have to allow for the possibility that God speaks through human messengers. You cannot know Jesus well if you will not accept that possibility. The Jesus who lived and the Jesus who lives believed that God speaks through human messengers. The words of those messengers get written down. Chapter 3, verse 1, this is the second letter that I am writing to you. I am an apostle. Jesus called me to speak on his behalf. And I am speaking on his behalf to a wider audience than could hear my voice by writing down these words. And in fact, verse 16 talks about the scriptures. That's just a word that means writings. God speaks through human messengers. Those words of the messengers are written down. Now, because he speaks through a variety of messengers, um, their writings have different emphases and different styles and reflecting different personalities and cultural backgrounds and even languages. Right? The Old Testament isn't written originally in Greek, but the New Testament is. So there are differences, but there's one coherent meaning throughout all the scriptures. Here's how Peter describes that, right? He says, Jesus is coming back, and in the meantime, we should be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and we should count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Peter, did you not get the memo? Your ministry and Paul's look very different. You, you've primarily been used by God to reach people from a Jewish background who are familiar with Judaism. 
His first language was Aramaic. And, and Paul has been used mainly to reach Gentiles, non-Jews, who, who may know very little about Judaism and whose first language is Greek. And did, Peter, didn't you get the memo that there's been a lot of conflict between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians and that you and Paul are sometimes viewed as being not on the same page? Peter's like, I know, but there's one coherent message to all the scriptures. Paul and I aren't the same. We're different. We have different callings. We come from different cultural backgrounds. Paul is way more comfortable than I am with eating a wider range of foods with a wider range of people. I'm okay with that. We're both trusting Jesus. We're both apostles of Jesus. We're not identical, but there's one coherent meaning. We both call people, right, as Paul also wrote to you, to be ready for the return of Jesus. We both call people to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Scripture is a means of grace. It's a way of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so if we keep looking at the Bible as just a collection of human wisdom, we're going to cut ourselves off from the opportunity to grow. Right? When you grow up in New York City and you say, I want to play the banjo, people look at you funny. If, if Bela Fleck had listened to the people who said, this is kind of a hillbilly instrument and you ain't from Kentucky, boy, play a different instrument because this thing is only good for bluegrass. No. It's not good for just that. Let's expand the borders of how this instrument has been used musically. I want to keep growing. I want to keep growing. Now, does all teaching of the Bible help me to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ? The answer is no. There are some people who distort the Scriptures. That's what verse 17 says. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. Verse 16, he says, you know what? Some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. Not every part of Scripture is equally clear to every person. And some of the people who have a hard time understanding it, they are twisting what is written to their own destruction. Another way to translate that word twist is distort. So not all teaching that comes from the Bible will help you to know Jesus better. I am saying that for your good, but also for mine. I have to make sure that every word I ever speak about the Bible or write or pray would actually be good to help you know Jesus more and to help you know more of his grace. And if I'm not doing that well, then I need to stop doing what I'm doing. 
So there's a, there's a responsibility that each of us has to make sure that we're growing in our knowledge of Jesus by knowing him more and more through the scriptures. But we have to be sure that what we're knowing from the scriptures is actually healthy and can help us grow. I was watching, uh, well, a little bit of background. Trisha and I lived in Scotland for a couple of years, and we had this little black and white TV that started to go after about five minutes. So we decided we'd rather read than watch TV. And um, so as a student at university, I, you know, great library, I would check out, you know, let's read British literature. So Jane Austen for Tricia, and uh, there's this new set of Sherlock Holmes books published by Oxford University. I'm going to start reading Sherlock Holmes stories. So, long story short, I love British detective dramas, right? And I was watching one recently in which the, a priest in, in a small town was saying to someone in conversation, we do not believe that there is one way. We, we in my church don't believe that, that, that kind of there's this one acceptable approach to, to knowing God. And, and this priest said, you know, as a... As an, as an example, you know, I, I think it's okay to call God her, not him, um, and, and gave two or three examples. But the big takeaway was we don't believe that there is one way. And I'm watching it and going, the irony is they framed the shot with the priest sitting in the foreground, and in the background is this huge stained glass window, like bigger than that, stained glass window of Jesus you know, the same Jesus who said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a fictional priest. But there are real priests and pastors who say those kinds of things, right? Who say, we've kind of gotten wiser than Jesus. We've kind of moved beyond some of what Jesus said. So we'll hang on to some parts of Jesus as we know him through the scriptures, but other parts of Jesus as we know him through the scriptures, he doesn't meet up with our standards anymore. So we're going to leave those behind. Guys, we can't do that. We cannot do that. We cannot ever say, Jesus, I know you as my Lord, and I stand in judgment over you to evaluate whether what you said meets my standards or not. If you're knowing Jesus in that way, it's probably more dangerous than not knowing him at all. You're not knowing him as Lord if you're saying, I get to evaluate him and decide which pieces of him he really meant and which ones he didn't. So how can I recognize the difference? A couple of quick tests. How do we know if we have sincere understanding of the scriptures? How do we know if our 
growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is healthy growth. Two tests. Here's one. The more I know the Bible, the less I need Jesus as Savior. If you're saying that, it's not good growth. It's not sincere understanding. If we know the Scriptures and know Jesus through the Scriptures, then our need of Him as Savior, we will always be seeing more and more and more of that need. We will never get tired of saying, I need to be rescued and I cannot rescue myself. We will never get tired of knowing the grace of Jesus. Trish and I are doing some premarital counseling right now uh, with some couples. We're reading a book by Tim Keller and his wife Kathy about the meaning of marriage. Shameless plug for a great book. Um, and we're reading this chapter about how important forgiveness is in a marriage. And I had to put the book down because I realized there's a relationship I have where I really need to forgive someone, and I have not been honest about that. I've not been willing to go there. And so put the book down, spend some time praying, spend some time interacting with Jesus and realizing I was slow to forgive this person because I had lost sight of what a glorious thing it is that Jesus has forgiven me. I stopped growing in that aspect of grace. Wait a minute, this new status I have as somebody who's spotless and acceptable to God because Jesus washed away all of my moral and spiritual imperfections and I have complete forgiveness, I've lost that joy and therefore it's gotten harder to want to forgive other people. So now I'm in this healthier place where I can, I can actually extend forgiveness to this person. And that forgiveness is not rooted in the fact that I'm such an awesome, forgiving person. And it's not rooted in the fact, well, this person didn't really hurt me that badly. And they're such a great person. It's rooted in the fact that Jesus is such a great Savior. That's real forgiveness. That's a solid foundation for real reconciliation and broken relationships. If you find yourself in a place where you're saying, the more I know the Bible, the less I need Jesus as Savior, that's not healthy. That's not healthy growth. And if you find yourself in this place saying, the more I know the Bible, the less I submit to Jesus as Lord, Remember what Peter says. Last thing I get to say to you, my time is short. Remember this. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If the more you know the Scriptures, the less it costs you to submit to Jesus, the less willing you are to pay a price to be his follower, something's not right. If I know Jesus more and more, then surely the overflow would be that I'm more and more ready to do anything he would ask of me, even if it's hard, 
Growing in grace is this constant process of sitting under the scriptures and letting Jesus reshape and refine us so that we can enjoy his glory to the full. Well, someone gave Bela Fleck a banjo when he was 15. Imagine being given a telescope instead. Why would you love it? If you had a telescope, why would you love it? Well, you wouldn't, unless you love the stars even more. You love the telescope because it lets you see the glory of something bigger than the telescope. It lets you see the glory of the stars. And if you love the glory of the stars, you step outside at night and you say, you know, I can see something of their glory with my naked eye. But I want to see more than I can see unaided by myself. I want to learn how to use this telescope. I want to learn how to work every knob and dial and button. I want to learn everything I can about it because I'm in love with the glory of the stars. If you love the glory of the stars and someone gives you a telescope, wouldn't you want to use it? The scriptures are like that. Can you know something of Jesus, even if you don't know the Bible very well? Yeah, you can. But if you begin to see who Jesus really is, you want to know as much about him as possible, more than you could know with the unaided eye. <laughs> now, there are a lot of people who learn how to use their telescopes with the lens caps on. And they celebrate their knowledge of the Bible and they don't know Jesus. That's not the right use of that telescope. We use the lens that Jesus has given for seeing him, the scriptures. Because we love him. We want to see as much of his glory as we can. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ.